Hey everyone, welcome to the Soul Talk Podcast. My name is Mary Beth Rim, and as a licensed psychotherapist and coach, I am deeply invested in promoting holistic well-being. This podcast is specifically crafted for those who are determined to live a healthier lifestyle and are ready to invest the necessary time and energy to achieve it. However, please be aware that this podcast does not serve as a substitute for medical care or therapy. The primary objective is to delve into the intricate connections between the mind, body, and spirit, and assist you in discovering your true self through enriching conversations that will accompany us as we embark on this journey and put in the miles together. Everyone, welcome back to the Soul Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Beth Rim, and I want to thank you for joining me on what promises to be a profoundly insightful episode today. Today, we're delving deep into a subject that touches all of us, yet remains shrouded in so many misconceptions. That topic is grief. For many of us, when we think of grief, the renowned five stages outlined by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross come to mind. While these stages offer a vital framework, grief with its many faces doesn't always fit neatly into these categories. So the goal today is to journey beyond these conventional stages and explore the vast nuanced landscape of mourning. We aim to shed light on the less discussed emotions, the cultural influences, and the transformative potentials that grief can usher in. Whether you're navigating your own grief, supporting someone through theirs, or just aiming to understand this universal emotion better, today's episode seeks to offer a fresh perspective and tools for the path ahead. So go ahead, get comfortable, sit back, and let's let's take this journey together today. Before we delve deeper into the complexities of grief beyond tr- the traditionally known stages, it's important that we first establish a foundation. And this foundation is built upon the pioneering work of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who introduced to the world the five stages of grief in her 1969 book on death and dying. So through these stages were initially proposed in relation to understanding terminally ill patients' experiences. They've since become a reference point for many dealing with grief and loss. So let's briefly explore each one. So The five stages actually are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Denial is the initial shock of the loss. It's that overwhelming feeling of numbness, disbelief, or rejection of its reality. It's the this-can't-be-happening phase, where the world feels surreal 
and there's a struggle to accept the magnitude of the loss. Anger is the second stage as the masking effects of denial start to fade. The pain emerges, often redirected and expressed as anger. This can be directed at others, yourself, or the universe at large. The question often posed in this stage is, why me and why them? And anger comes, anger I'm going to do an entire episode on. There's so many different faces of anger and really where it comes from. Um, so, but for now, for, for grief, you know, it's really um, a, a masking effect of, you know, the pain, the, the loss. So the third stage is bargaining. Bargaining is characterized by a desperate yearning to negotiate or make a deal to lessen the reverse, the pain. You know, for some, this might manifest as negotiations with higher power, God, or, or even internal negotiations. Like, if only I had done things differently. So we kind of bargain with ourselves. We bargain with God. Um, so it kind of goes together also with the denial and the anger phase as well. So these phases kind of build on each other. And the fourth one is the depression stage, where depression can be viewed as the deep sorrow and grief settling in on more profound level. It's not just a reaction to the loss, but also a natural and necessary part of the grieving process. It encompasses feelings of emptiness, of despair, and just overall weight of the absence. So the acceptance is the fifth stage. So contrary to popular belief, acceptance doesn't mean everything is okay. Instead, it's an acknowledgement of the reality of the situation. It's the stage where the heart begins to understand what the mind has known, leading to the slow, gradual process of moving forward. We'll really touch more in depth on these five stages and also other stages or other uh, parts of this as well. So it's essential to note that these stages, they're not, aren't necessarily linear. So it's not like, okay, I go through denial, I go through, um, uh, go through bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance. So it's not that way because um, they can overlap. They reoccur or they can be skipped altogether. So every person's journey through grief really is unique. Just like we're all individuals and we're all unique individuals. But understanding these stages provides a roadmap and helping you recognize and validate your emotions. Uh, grief isn't something that's often talked about because um, there's a stigma to it, sort of like mental health, because if you're, a lot of times if we're grieving, you know, we want, we always, we want to feel better. So sometimes we go to the doctor and we tell the doctor, well, um, you know, I'm just feeling, I'm feeling really depressed or I feel really angry. Um, 
And of course, you know, the first thing is I'll give you medication for it. There really isn't any medication to take your grief away. What it does is it will mask your grief and at times will make it even worse. So that's why we really need to understand and learn um, how to cope with how we're feeling, how to cope with these very intense emotions. Most people don't necessarily like intense emotions. We want to hide. We want to deny them. Uh, We want to just not want to make sure that they're not there. Um, It's like, oh, and and again, grief and loss are are very um, normal situation in life. It's just what we all go through losses, but it's how we handle that loss and understand our emotions and how to validate them that this is okay, that this is what I'm going through right now. So with this foundation, let's now venture beyond these stages to uncover the broader spectrum of the grief experience. So introduction to the idea that grief is complex and doesn't necessarily fit neatly into um, five stages because uh, it's multifaceted nature of grief. So now that, you know, again, that we laid out the traditional framework of the five stages of grief, we must underscore an important realization. Grief in its truest form is intricate and multidimensional. While the five stages, it kind of gives us a foundation. They're not, they're just the tip of the iceberg. So we're kind of leaving a lot out. You know, we've, since 1969, we've really learned a lot more about the emotion of grief. And that's what grief is. Grief is really, it's an emotion. And that we all go through from one time or another in our life. And when someone says, oh, just kind of get over it, you'll be okay, you know, you have to go through what you're going through. And and of course, loss comes in many different ways, not just the loss of a person, not just the death. So there's many other ways that we grieve through our life, and we don't realize that. A lot of times, again, we mask grief And we kind of go, oh, well, we're depressed or we're anxious. Could very well be grief. So what happens is that we pathologize, you know, it becomes, you know, pathological. And it doesn't have to be. So imagine an intricate tapestry woven with threads of various colors, textures, and lengths. Some threads are smooth, where others are knotted and tangled. Grief is much like this tapestry. Every person's tapestry of grief looks and feels different. And while the five stages might represent some common threads, there are countless others to wind. So the non linear of grief. Grief isn't a straight path. You know, it's windy, it's rough, it's 
could be smooth. It could be a lot of different things. You know, again, grief isn't a straight path that that you walk from point A to point B going, okay, I'm going to walk through all of these stages. And finally, I'm going to get to the acceptance stage. So a lot of times we want to go through denial and go right to the acceptance stage when you're not ready to do that. It's more like a winding journey with detours, dead ends, and sometimes even loops. A person might oscillate between anger and acceptance or may never even experience the bargaining stage. The path is individual and it's very unpredictable. And I've had some people uh, come to me in therapy and say, well, when is this ever going to go away? When am I going to feel better? Well, everybody again is different. There's a spectrum of emotions. While Kubler-Ross's stages capture some of these key emotional responses, grief can invoke a vast array of feelings from relief to guilt, from anxiety to profound sadness, and even moments of unexpected joy and remembrance. It's a testament to the rich tapestry of human emotions. So the in external influences on grieving, like cultural backgrounds, personal beliefs, previous experiences with loss, and even the nature of the relationship with the departed can all influence how one grieves. For some cultures, they're loud, they're vocal. You know, vocal mourning is encouraged, while in others, a stoic and quiet remembrance is the norm. Again, grief's unpredictability. You know, these days when a simple reminder, like a song or a scent, might pull someone back into profound sadness, even if they felt they had reached a place of acceptance. This is what some term as grief bursts. It's it's sudden, intense waves of emotions that can come long after the initial loss. And it doesn't actually have to be a a departed loved one. It could be a divorce. It could be, um, you know, it could be a dysfunctional family that decides, well, I'm never talking to them again, you know, and then you're estranged. It could be a job loss because possibly you lost you know, your identity. A lot of people identify themselves through to their jobs. It could be a number of different losses in our life. You know, we're just feeling lost. So these sudden intense waves of emotion that can come long after the initial loss. What's vital in understanding this intricate dance of emotions is to realize that there's no right way to grieve. You know, the journey is unique as the relationship we had with the job, with the person. After a while, frameworks and stages can guide us. They should never restrict or define the entirety of our experience. 
you know, a lot of people sometimes, you know, they don't like to talk about these really intense, hard emotions. And what they try to do is dissuade you to grieve. It's like, oh, well, it's been a year. You should be okay by now. You know, and, and a lot of times it's okay. You are where you are in the moment. And sometimes we just have to have that insight that this is where I am right now. And that's not, these, these emotions are not permanent. It's not something that you actually go through every single day. Again, that's where the bursts come in. One minute you can be feeling okay. And then the next, all of a sudden you have this profound sadness or anxiety. So really kind of get in tune with your body, get in tune with where you are and your emotions, your thoughts, your feelings. As we delve deeper into today's exploration, remember that it's okay for you to grieve, to look different, to feel different. It's your personal journey and every twist and turn and pause is valid. As we journey deeper into the complexities of grief, it's crucial to understand the origins of the commonly referenced five stages. They didn't just spring up randomly. Now, again, there's a lot of <clears throat> research that goes into these things. So they are rooted in rigorous research and compassionate observation by the notable figure in the field of psychiatry and death studies. People actually study death and dying by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So Kubler-Ross's motivation, uh, she was a Swiss American psychiatrist, was inspired to delve into the subject of death and dying during her visits to concentration camps post-World War II. The resilience and depth of human spirit she witnessed there set the stage for her life's work. So the groundbreaking book, in 1969, she published a book on death and dying. This wasn't just any publication. It was revolutionary. For the first time, someone was openly discussing the emotional experiences of those nearing the end of life. And out of her extensive interviews and observations with terminally ill patients emerged the framework we now know as the five stages of grief. So the original context, it's important to understand that Kubler-Ross originally defined these stages as the processes the terminally ill go through after their diagnosis. They were not initially proposed as stages of mourning after death. But over time, however, the applicability expanded and they became widely accepted as stages people experience after any type of significant loss. You know, again, a divorce, it could be a, obviously death. Um, it could be, a, you know, a loss, a job loss. It could be... Um, it could be the loss of, of your children growing up and moving away. 
there's a grieving process there. You know, it's, you raise them to 18, 20, nowadays, 25, 30. Um, but it, at some point they, they go off on their own and you're grieving that loss. And nobody really talks about that piece of it either. It's, you know, the, again, it goes way beyond um, people's experience with any type of significant loss. So a paradigm shift. Kubler-Ross's work radically shifted societal conversations around death. A lot of times death was never really talked about. Well, we don't talk about that. And, you know, you need to just land on your feet and just move on. But before her, the topic was, it was really largely taboo. But she created a platform for patients, families, and medical professionals to discuss death and the emotions surrounding it with openness and understanding. And I still don't think that we're quite there yet. I don't think that the, we really even know her book was revolutionary. Her study research um, was revolutionary. That we don't actually we shy away from that topic because of fear, fear of, oh my God, you know, I, I this, a lot of things come up for me when I talk about this. Yeah, it is. It's going to come up whether you talk about it or not, or try to shove it in a corner and make believe it's not there, but it's going to come up. It really is. Um, so, while her work was groundbreaking, it was not without critique, of course. So some felt it was too linear or it didn't capture the, the breadth of human emotions. But even in her later years, Kubler-Ross herself acknowledged that grief was more fluid than her model might suggest. So the stages were never meant to be a strict, rigid progression, but rather a framework to aid understanding of this particular emotion that people go through. So Kubler-Ross's contributions to the world of psychiatry, bereavement studies, and to the understanding of human emotions during moments of profound loss are monumental. And while her model is just one lens through which we can view grief, it has paved the way for deeper exploration, understanding, and com conversation. Within this historical context, we can now appreciate the vast landscape of grief and the many ways it manifests in our lives. So understanding the true essence of a concept often means going back to its roots. When we speak of the five stages of grief, it's crucial to recognize their original context as this provides deeper insight and also clarity. So Dr. Kubler-Ross's pioneering work on death and dying was primarily centered around really the emotional, uh, centered around uh, the experience of terminally ill patients. So she wanted to shed light on the emotional turmoil, acceptance, and various feelings that these individuals went through 
after receiving a life-altering diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit more about the five stages in context. Each stage represents a common reaction she observed in these patients. Though denial was like a protective shield against the overwhelming shock of a terminal illness. The anger was actually a natural reaction to the unfairness of this fate. And the bargaining was the hope that somehow the inevitable could be postponed or even even reversed, even stopped. And depression was the sinking realization of impending death and the associated losses. And then lastly, acceptance was a calm, often detached acknowledgement of the inevitable that, okay, this is what I'm going through. So the universal application of these stages, while these stages were tailored to the terminally ill, their resonance was so profound that they became universally recognized. People began to see parallels in their own grieving processes after losing a loved one or losing whatever you felt that you lost. So over time, the five stages became a generalized model for grief, regardless of its cause. But there's a a risk of misinterpretation. So there's a subtle difference between grieving one's impending death and mourning the loss of another. While there are overlaps in the emotional experience, the specific triggers Context and coping mechanisms uh, can differ. By universalizing the stages, there's a risk of oversimplifying this grieving process or setting expectations on how you should grieve. So, recognizing the emotional intention behind the five stages is more than just a historical note, it's a reminder that grief is a deeply personal journey. whether it's a terminal patient grappling with their own mortality or someone mourning the loss of a loved one. So each journey is is unique. Everybody's the way that they handle this emotion is unique. While frameworks can guide, but they shouldn't dictate or limit your understanding. So with this perspective, you can approach the topic of grief with greater empathy, open-mindedness, and a deeper appreciation for the complexities. Grief is very complex. All of these, a lot of emotions that we have, which are a lot, it's not just, you know, a few of them, um, are very complex. The human the humanness of who we are is complex. So as with many groundbreaking theories in psychology and emotional well-being, the five stages of grief, while widely recognized, have not been exempt from any kind of critique or discussions. So now we'll explore some modern perspectives on whether the five stages are too restrictive or linear.
So one of the most common critiques is the perception of the stages as a linear progression. While Kubler-Ross never intended the stages to be a strict sequence, many interpret them as such. So this leads to misconceptions, like believing you must move on from denial straight to anger, then to bargaining, and then to depression, and then you must get to acceptance. Not sure really what the acceptance stage really actually looks like, because a lot of people can move from denial into depression, back into bargaining. You know, we can go through all of that, but what does the acceptance piece of that really look like or mean to you? So the one size fits all is a problem. So another critique is that those stages might inadvertently suggest a standardized grieving process. Grief is, again, deeply, deeply personal, and not everyone will experience every stage or an order presented. So some might never feel anger or bargaining, but many might oscillate between acceptance and depression, whatever that looks like. So overlooking other emotions. While the five stages, they cover a broad emotional spectrum, critics argue they might not um, encompass the full range of feelings people experience. For instance, feelings like guilt, relief, or even moments of unexpected joy and remembrance are not explicitly covered in this model. This model doesn't talk about the guilt. So guilt and grief can go together along with a lot of other emotions. So cultural and personal differences. So the way that we grieve can be influenced by cultural, societal, and individual differences. So some cultures might, you know, emphasize stoicism while others encourage vocal expressions of sorrow. The five stages might not resonate with or fully represent all these diverse experiences. So the evolution of understanding as psychological and bereavement studies have evolved. So too has our understanding of grief. Some modern models advocate for more fluid and adaptive understanding of grief, recognizing its waves, its triggers, and the long-term nature. So it's essential, however, to remember that any critique isn't a dismissal of Kubler-Ross's work. Instead, it's a call for a broader understanding. Her five stages have been a beacon for many, providing clarity in turbulent times. But like any model, it's a starting point, not an end. It opens the door to deeper exploration, allowing for individual nuances and complexities. So with this modern lens, we can approach the concept of grief with both reverence for its established frameworks and an openness to its expansive, multifaceted nature. 
So again, the complexity of individual grief, and also uh, sometimes that we, the way that we grieve, the emotions that we shout out, um, either within us or to other people, can also cause another emotion called shame. So because we, again, we feel shameful for the way that we feel. And grief is grief, like any other emotion. So grief, through a universal human experience, it's colored by a mosaic of influences. So our culture, religious beliefs, personal ideologies, or even our temperament all play pivotal roles in shaping how we mourn, remember, and eventually heal. So let's explore this intricate interplay and see how diverse the landscape of grief really can be. So again, cultural influences on grief. Cultures around the world have distinct rituals, customs, and perspectives on death and mourning. And I think some of these customs and perspectives on grief are really... um, they're, you know, they're kind of revolving. They're, they're, there's a definitely new perspectives today where it used to be that, <clears throat> you know, the Catholics or the Christians, they would have their way of grieving was to say goodbye to the person. So you would have like two days of um, an, an open casket to where you, People would come in and they would see the person for the last time. They would have calling hours and then you would have a funeral. And after the funeral, you would go and you would have a meal with your family and friends. It's a little bit different today. A lot of people are not being buried. There's, you know, some people are being cremated. So you have, you know, it's very different today than what it was many years ago. So our Western cultures, for instance, often prioritize individual expression and, again, might see open displays of grief as therapeutic. Eastern cultures, on the other hand, might emphasize collective mourning where the community comes together and share rituals. So religious beliefs in mourning, religion can offer solace, explanations, and rituals that help individuals navigate their grief. Christianity might offer comfort in the brief of an afterlife in heaven. Hinduism views death as a transition and the cycle of reincarnation. Buddhism emphasizes impermanence and offers meditative practices to process grief. Each religion with its beliefs and practices provides a unique framework for understanding death and finding meaning in loss personal beliefs and philosophies. So beyond organized religion, our personal beliefs about life, death, and what comes after can shape our grieving process. Someone who believes in spiritualism might find comfort in feeling the presence of their loved one. So a person with secular beliefs might derive solace from cherishing memories and and also the legacy um, they left behind. So individual temperament and grief are inherent temperament. 
whether we're naturally introspective, expressive, stoic, or emotive, can also influence our grieving. So an introspective person might turn to journaling or deep reflection. An expressive individual might seek support groups or counseling. Someone with a stoic nature might grieve privately, finding strength in silent remembrance. An emotive person might need to vocalize their pain, perhaps through art, music, or even conversation. So understanding and respecting these differences is crucial in supporting those in mourning. So it's a vast tapestry, isn't it? Well, the ways that we process, express, and come to terms with our grief is diverse as humanity itself. And while models and stages, they can guide us, it's these personal collective influences that truly color our experiences. So in understanding the nuances, we can approach the grieving or our grief with greater empathy, respect, and a deep appreciation for its in profound complexities. So let's unpack, I mentioned a little bit before, grief bursts, the sudden waves of, of mourning. So let's, let's explore that. So in our exploration of the multifaceted nature of grief, there's an experience that many, if not most, grieving individuals encounter but may not have a name for it, but it's called grief bursts. So today we're going to delve into this profound and often unexpected manifestation of mourning. So what is grief bursts? So imagine you're going about your day, perhaps you're engaged in some kind of mundane task or even a joyful moment when suddenly a wave of grief just washes over you. It's intense, unexpected. This sudden, overwhelming feeling of sadness or longing is what is commonly referred to as grief burst. While the initial period after a loss might be consistently painful, as time progresses, grief can become more sporadic. A particular song, a scent, a date on the calendar or even a random thought can act as triggers, leading to these intense emotional reactions. So it's not just an emotional wave. Grief bursts can also have a physical manifestation, a racing heart, tightness in the chest, or even a feeling of breathlessness. For many, it's as if the loss has, has just happened all over again, even if it's been years. So how do you navigate through those bursts? While you can be, while they can be disconcerting, it's essential to remember that grief bursts are a natural part of the healing process. So here's a few ways to kind of cope. So acknowledgement, recognize the burst for what it is. It's natural, intense expression of your ongoing connection to the one that you've lost. Grounding techniques, deep breathing, mindfulness exercises, or tactile methods like holding on to an object, you can help anchor you during an intense burst. 
seeking support, of course, talk to someone that you trust, share a memory or feeling that triggered the burst and allow yourself the space to feel the process. So when you talk to someone, uh, when you out seek out support, you also have to recognize is this person or persons, are they truly supportive or are they just going to tell you, um, just get over it. It's been five years. My God, why, why are you even thinking about this? So you want to make sure that someone is truly going to listen to you and support is about someone listening, not saying anything, but listening. So that's, you know, all I'm going to say about support. So you need to make sure that it's positive support. So grief, as we've explored, isn't linear. It ebbs and it flows. So sometimes receding into the background and at other times surging forth with an unexpected intensity. So grief bursts are a testament to the lasting bonds and memories that we hold, reminding us that love and connection, it doesn't cease with a loss. So in understanding and embracing these unpredictable waves, we grant ourselves the compassion and patience needed on the journey of healing. So while the five stages of grief provide, you know, again, the framework, the emotional landscaping of mourning can stretch beyond them, you know, encompassing feelings that are less often spoken about are equally significant. So today we delve into the, the deeper into these emotions to better understand the complexity of, of grief. And one of them is, is guilt. So the weight of what ifs. For many, losses intertwined with guilt, whether it's, over un, whether it's over unsaid words that, gee, I should have, you know, I should have said, said this differently or I should have talked to this person unresolved conflicts. That's a huge one. Or the mere thought of moving on without the deceased. This emotion can be overwhelming. Uh, it's a nagging question of what if that revisits time and time again. So if you have relationships, you know, uh, and when there's a loss, these unresolved conflicts can really be a problem. And that could prolong some of these intense feelings. It could prolong your grief. So, you know, we'll get into more of that later on about unresolved conflicts, because I think it's a very important topic um, to talk about and how do we resolve conflicts. So relief. Um, in situations where a loved one has endured a prolonged illness or suffering, the feeling of relief that their pain is gone after their passing is it's common. Yet it's also accompanied by guilt as well. So it's crucial to understand that this relief doesn't, doesn't diminish the loved one. Instead, it's an empathic response to the end of the loved one's pain. Disbelief. For many, there's a lingering sense of disbelief, a prolonged feeling 
that the loss isn't real. We have may have dreams, fleeting thoughts, or momentary expectations of the loved one's presence can all be manifestations. Numbness. You have this protective cocoon. In the face of profound loss, some people experience numbness. It's as if the mind is trying to shield itself from the intensity of the pain or you disassociate. Creates a barrier leading to the feelings of detachment or distance from reality. Well, amid the pain, there's often a quest to find meaning and purpose in the aftermath of the loss, whether it's understanding the bigger picture, seeking solace in spirituality, or finding ways to honor the deceased, this search can be a significant step in the healing process. So again, you know, the pain of loss is not just an emotional journey. For many, grief manifests physically and mentally, impacting daily functioning and overall well-being. So what does grief do to our bodies? Of course, the body reacts. The physical toll of grief is profound. At all times, surprising. So many grievers experience sleep disturbances, insomnia to vivid dreams, or even oversleeping. Our rest cycles can be deeply affected. Fatigue yeah, could have a profound tiredness that isn't necessarily alleviated by sleep. And changes of appetite happen. So some may lose their desire to eat while others might seek food as, as comfort. There's a foggy mind, so grief can cloud our cognitive functions. This brain fog might manifest as memory issues like forgetting dates and tasks, misplacing items, uh, hard time focusing, you know, tasks that were once easy might now feel overwhelming or even confusing. So beyond the immediate emotions of loss, grief can also magnify or trigger deeper mental health challenges, a heightened sense of fear about the future, or worry about other potential losses. De depression, an overwhelming sense of sadness, lack of interest in loved ones or activities, feelings of hopelessness, but also the contrast is sudden versus anticipated loss. So the nature of loss can also influence how we grieve. So sudden Losses, there's the shock and disbelief, can be more intense, often leading to stronger physical and cognitive reactions. Anticipated losses. When a loved one has had a prolonged illness, there might be a mix of relief, as we touched on earlier, and a sense of preparedness, but this doesn't necessarily lessen the grief at all. The process might have started even before the actual loss, affecting our health over an extended period of time. So grief research is extensive, affecting every fiber of our being. So recognizing these physical and mental impacts isn't about pathologic, being pathological grief, but 
about understanding its depth and breadth. So it underscores the importance of seeking a support group, whether it's, you know, therapy or um, a grief group, or simply recognizing and honoring your own needs. So grief, while deeply personal, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's experienced and expressed within the context of society, families, and friendships. And so the, there's expectations and pressures. So in a world where everyone seems to have an opinion today, um, grieving individuals often face external pressures, like timelines, society, friends, or even family might expect you to move on after a certain period of time. Expression, there may be judgments on how you display your grief, whether it's such, whether it's seen as too much, too little, too public, too private. You know, so it's not uncommon for individuals to unintentionally compare their grief with others. Phrases like, at least you had more time with them, or you think that's bad, listen to what happened to me can be harmful. It was essential to remember, but every loss is unique and comparing only invalidates feelings. So grief is not a competition. There's no award for the worst experience. Everyone's pain is certainly, certainly valid. So grief can also act as magnifying glass, highlighting the strengths and weaknesses in relationships. Some friends and family might be uncomfortable or unsure how to support you, leading to distance. Again, that's that uncomfortability with the way that you're grieving versus the way that they think that everybody should grieve. You know, grief can also, the other side of the coin is that grief can also deepen a bond creating a stronger connection with those who provide empathy and understanding and also recognizing the need for boundaries, whether it's avoiding topics or seeking space can be essential for, uh, self-preservation. So, um, you know, so you can't fix grief, you know, but there's also positive transformations, defining post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth is not about bouncing back to the same state as before because you're in a different place. You're not going to, you know, be who you were. You're not. And you have to accept where you are right now. So, you know, it's about bouncing forward and reshaping and redefining yourself in the wake of adversity. It's the experience of positive change that occurs as a result of the struggle with highly challenging life crises. While resilience refers to returning to a baseline, um, a transformation and growth beyond the original baseline. So um, there's also five domains of post-traumatic growth. Research has highlighted several areas where you may experience profound growth. And that's a more appreciation for life, enjoying the moment, recognizing the beauty in everyday experiences, deepen connections, 
increased empathy and greater value placed on your relationships. Also, recognizing new paths or opportunities that weren't apparent or pursued before the trauma. Also, recognizing your own capacity to endure and overcome, leading to greater confidence in facing future challenges. Also, could also be a deeper or altering spiritual beliefs or a broadening sense of understanding and connection to the universe. So it doesn't diminish the pain or trauma experienced. Again, it's not a linear process and it doesn't imply that the trauma was worth it. Instead, it's possible to feel profound sadness while simultaneously experiencing areas of growth. Growth often emerges from active engagement with a traumatic experience, seeking understanding and reevaluating your worldview engaging in therapy and support groups or meaningful conversations can also facilitate the journey towards post-traumatic growth. So while the term post-traumatic growth might be an academic um, term, the phenomenon speaks to the timeless human ability to find light in, in darkness, to rebuild, to find new meaning after shattering experiences. So recognizing this potential within you doesn't negate your pain, but it offers hope and a path forward. So again, it's grief is not, grief is certainly not linear. So here's some, some kind of final closing thoughts. So as we've journeyed through the various dimensions of grief, it becomes evident that there's no universal blueprint. No one size fits all at all. In anything that we do, there's no one size fits all. So just as individual is unique, so is your path through grief. So today we reflect on the deeply personal and individual tapestry of, of mourning. So in understanding that every grief is distinct, we also learn compassion for ourselves and also for others as we navigate the intricate personal experiences of loss. So as we come to a close here on this particular episode, you know, just some last minute um closing remarks, you know, grief is an emotion that everyone goes through, but it's important to be kind to yourself, to be kind to those around you and to those navigating the intricate dance of loss. So your compassion, a kind word, or just listening can make the world different place and a better place to be in. So I thank you for joining us in exploring grief beyond the five stages. So take care of yourself. And until next time, remember to embrace the journey, honor the memories and hold on to hope. 
remember that everyone's journey to better health and wellness is unique. And it's important to find strategies and practices that work for you. So by prioritizing self-care, staying active, getting enough sleep, connecting with others, eating a balanced diet, and managing stress, you can take control of your own health and well-being and achieve a better quality of life. Thank you again for tuning in to the Soul Talk podcast. I trust that this episode has provided you with invaluable insights and strategies for enhancing your health and well-being. To keep the conversation going, you can connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under LCSWRunner. You can also find me, I have a Facebook group called High Impact Series. So please stay tuned for forthcoming episodes where we will delve deeper into a range of wellness-related topics. Remember, prioritizing your wellness is an ongoing journey, not a destination. By consistently putting in the effort and practicing self-care, you can achieve optimal well-being and live your best life. So let's embark on this journey together and put in the mile. (music) 